Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. Today we're reading, reading short and deep. The Moonslave by Barry Payne. This was first published in a collection of his stories called uh, Stories in the Dark from 1901. And it's, uh, would it's, you read it? Uh, how did you, oh, sorry. Would I read it? Sure. Thanks. Sure. <laughs> All right. The Moonslave. The Princess Viola had, even in her childhood, an inevitable submission to the dance. A rhythmical madness in her blood answered hotly to the dance music, swaying her as the wind sways trees to the movements of perfect sympathy and grace. For the rest, she had her beauty and her long hair that reached to her knees and was thought lovable, but she was never very fervent and vivid unless she was dancing. At other times, there almost seemed to be a touch of lethargy upon her. Now, when she was 16 years old, she was betrothed to the Prince Hugo. With others, the betrothal was merely a question of state. With her, it was merely a question of obedience to the wishes of authority. It had been arranged Hugo was, comme si, comme ça, no God in her eyes. It did not matter, but with Hugo, it was quite different. He loved her. The betrothal was celebrated by a banquet and afterwards by a dance in the great hall of the palace. From this dance, the princess soon made her escape, quite discontented, and went to the furthest part of the palace gardens where she could no longer hear the music calling her. They're all right, she said to herself as she thought of the men she had left, but they cannot dance. Mechanically, they are all right. They have learned it and don't make childish mistakes, but they are only one, two, three machines. They haven't the inspiration of dancing. It is so different when I dance alone. She wandered on until she reached an old forsaken maze. It had been planned by a former king. All round it was a high, crumbling wall with foxgloves growing on it. The maze itself had all its paths bordered with high, opaque hedges. In the very center was a circular open space with tall pine trees growing round it. Many years ago, the clue to the maze had been lost. It was now rarely that anyone entered it. Its gravel paths were green with weeds, and in some places the hedges spreading beyond their borders had made the way almost impassable. For a moment or two, Viola stood peering in at the gate, a narrow gate with curiously twisted bars of wrought iron surmounted by a heraldic device. Then the whim seized her to enter the maze and try to find the space in the center. She opened the gate and went in. Outside, everything was uncannily visible in the light of the full moon. But here, in the dark, shaded alleys, the night was conscious of itself. She soon forgot her purpose and wandered about quite aimlessly, sometimes forcing her way where the brambles had flung a laced barrier across her path and a dragging mass of convolvulus struck wet and cool upon her cheek. As chance would have it, she suddenly found herself standing under the tall pines and looking at the open space that formed the goal of the maze. She was pleased that she had got there. Here the ground was carpeted with sand, fine sand, 
as it seemed beaten hard. From the summer night sky immediately above, the moonlight unobstructed here streamed straight down upon the scene. Viola began to think about dancing. Over the dry, smooth sand, her little satin shoes moved easily, stepping and gliding, circling and stepping as she hummed the tune to which they moved. In the center of the space, she paused, looked at the wall of the dark trees all around, at the shining stretches of silvery sand, and at the moon above. My beautiful, moonlit, lonely, old dancing moon, why did I never find you before, she cried. But, she added, you need music. There must be music here. In her fantastic mood, she stretched her soft, clasped hands upwards towards the moon. Sweet moon, she said in a kind of mock prayer, make your white light come down in music into my dancing room here, and I will dance most deliciously for you to see. She flung her head backward and let her hands fall. Her eyes were half closed and her mouth was a kissing mouth. Ah, sweet moon, she whispered, do this for me, and I will be your slave. I will be what you will. Quite suddenly, the air was filled with the sound of a grand, invisible orchestra. Viola did not stop to wonder. To the music of a slow saraband, she swayed and postured. In the music, there was the regular beat of small drums and a perpetual drone. The air seemed to be filled with the perfume of some bitter spice. Viola could fancy almost that she saw a smoldering campfire and heard far off the roar of some desolate wild beast. She let her long hair fall, raising the heavy strands of it in either hand as she moved slowly to the laden music. Slowly her body swayed with drowsy grace. Slowly her satin shoes slid over the silver sand. The music ceased with a clash of cymbals. Viola rubbed her eyes. She fastened her hair up carefully again. Suddenly she looked up almost imperiously. Music! More music! She cried. Once more the music came. This time it was a dance of caprice, pelting along over the violin strings, leaping, laughing, wanton. Again an illusion seemed to cross her eyes. An old king was watching her, a king with the sordid history of the exhaustion of pleasure written on his flaccid face. A hook-nosed courtier by his side settled the ruffles at his wrists and mumbled, ravissant, quel malheur que la vieillesse. It was a strange illusion. Faster and faster she sped to the music, stepping, spinning, pirouetting. The dance was light as thistledown, fierce as fire, smooth as a rapid stream. The moment that the music ceased, Viola became horribly afraid. She turned and fled away from the moonlit space, through the trees, down the dark alleys of the maze, not heeding in the least which turn she took. And yet she found herself soon at the outside iron gate. From thence she ran through the palace garden, hardly ever pausing to take breath until she reached the palace itself. In the eastern sky, the first signs of dawn were showing. In the palace, the festivities were drawing to an end. As she stood alone in the outer hall, Prince Hugo came toward her. "'Where have you been, Viola?' he said sternly. "'What have you been doing?' She stamped her little foot. "'I will not be questioned,' she replied angrily. "'I have some right to question,' he said. (laughs) She laughed a little.' 
For the first time in my life, she said, I have been dancing. He turned away in hopeless silence. The months passed away. Slowly, a great fear came over Viola, a fear that would hardly ever leave her. For every month at the full moon, whether she would or no, she found herself driven to the maze through its mysterious walks into that strange dancing room. And when she was there, the music began once more. And once more, she danced most deliciously for the moon to see. The second time that this happened, she had merely thought that it was a recurrence of her own whim and that the music was but a trick of the imagination that had chosen to repeat. The third time frightened her, and she knew that the force that sways the tides had strange power over her. The fear grew as the year fell. For each month, the music went on for a longer time. Each month, some of the pleasure had gone from the dance. On bitter nights in winter, the moon called her, and she came. When the vapor, when the breath was vapor, and the trees had that circled her dancing room were black bear skeletons, and the frost was cruel. She dared not tell anyone, and yet it was with difficulty that she kept her secret. Somehow chance seemed to favor her, and she always found a way to return from her midnight dance to her own room without being observed. Each month, the summons seemed to be more imperious and urgent. Once, when she was alone on her knees before the lighted altar in the private chapel of the palace, she suddenly felt that the words of the familiar Latin prayer had gone from her memory. She rose to her feet. She sobbed bitterly, but the call had come and she could not resist it. She passed out of the chapel and down the palace gardens. How madly she danced that night. She was to be married in the spring. She began to be more gentle with Hugo now. She had a blind hope that when they were married, she might be able to tell him about it and he might be able to protect her for she had always known him to be fearless. She could not love him but she tried to be good to him. One day he mentioned to her that he had tried to find his way to the center of the maze and had failed. She smiled faintly. If only she could fail, but she never did. On the night before the wedding day, she had gone to bed and slept peacefully, thinking with her last waking moments of Hugo. Overhead, the full moon came up the sky. Quite suddenly, Viola was wakened with the impulse to fly to the dancing room. It seemed to bid her hasten with breathless speed. She flung a cloak around her, slipped her naked feet into her dancing shoes, and hurried forth. No one saw her or heard her on the marble staircase of the palace, on down the terraces of the garden. She ran as fast as she could, a thorn plant caught in her cloak, but she sped on, tearing it free, a sharp stone cut through the satin of one shoe, and her foot was wounded and bleeding, but she sped on. As the pebble that is flung from the cliff must fall until it reaches the sea, as the white ghost moth must come in from cool hedges and scented darkness to a burning death in the lamp by which you sit so late, so Viola had no choice. The moon called her. The moon drew her to that circle of hard, bright sand and the pitiless music. It was brilliant, rapid music tonight. Viola threw off her cloak and danced. As she did so, she saw that a shadow lay over a fragment of the moon's edge. It was the night of a total eclipse. 
She heeded it not. The intoxication of the dance was on her. She was all in white. Even her face was pale in the moonlight. Every movement was full of poetry and grace. The music would not stop. She had grown deathly weary. It seemed to her that she had been dancing for hours and the shadow had nearly covered the moon's face so that it was almost dark. She could hardly see the trees around her. She went on dancing, stepping, spinning, pirouetting, held by the merciless music. It stopped at last, just when the shadow had quite covered the moon's face and all was dark. But it stopped only for a moment and then began again. This time, it was a slow, passionate waltz. It was useless to resist. She began to dance once more as she did so, she uttered a sudden shrill scream of horror, for in the dead darkness, a hot hand had caught her own and whirled her round, and she was no longer dancing alone. The search for the missing princess lasted during the whole of the following day. In the evening, Prince Hugo, his face anxious and firmly set, passed in his search the iron gate of the maze and noticed on the stones beside it the stain of a drop of blood. Within the gate was another stain. He followed this clue, which had been left by Viola's wounded foot, until he reached that open space in the center that had served Viola for her dancing room. It was quite empty. He noticed that the, round, the sand round the edges was all worn down, as though someone had danced there round and round for a long time, but no separate footprint was distinguishable there. Just outside this track, however, he saw two footprints clearly defined close together. One was the print of a tiny satin shoe. The other was the print of a large naked foot, a cloven foot. Thank you very much. Uh, My pleasure, Jesse. I uh, I find this story incredibly suggestive and fascinating, and I did many many searches to try and figure out what's going on, what are other people's theories on this, and I I, I did not find a definitive answer to any of that, but I I have many ideas and many suggestions, uh, but there is one that I thought maybe you could help me with. Um, on our version of the text, it's on page 51, there is a very interesting French quotation um, coming from a vision that she has uh, on the previous page. It begins, again, an illusion seemed to cross her eyes. An old king was watching her, a king with a, the sordid history of exhaustion, of pleasure, written on his flaccid face, a hook-nosed courtier by his side settled the ruffles at his wrists and mumbled in French. Can you read this for me and tell me what it means? Ravissant. Quel malheur que la vieillesse. It means ravishing. Um, what a sadness is old age. Hmm. Hmm. And then the next line, it was a strange illusion. And that's illusion, I-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, which is the word that was used earlier. But the word is so close to allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, that I'm thinking that it, maybe it's that. 
and that there's a figure here that I should be recognizing, and I'm not. Do you know what this part of the story means? Because it baffles me still. Ah, uh, well, how it fits into the story as a whole depends, I think, in part on what one considers to be the story as a whole. Uh, if one thinks of the story as Viola selling her soul unwittingly, perhaps, because mm-hmm. um, she, she makes that prayer to the moon to, to give her music to dance with uh, and says, if you do this, I'll be your slave. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if this is Viola selling her soul to the moon, then her vision, I, I mean, to, to the devil, um, her vision is of those who understand, this is the courtier, not, not the, the, the king himself, um, those who understand that old age is a deep sadness. So if you sell yourself to the moon, you are selling yourself both to extinction, and she finally disappears on the night of a total eclipse, but also to renewal. As the the new moon is black, the full moon is white. And so um, ravishing is, I think, Mm. the comment that the courtier is making of the youthful Viola, who is, after all, just betrothed. Mm -hmm. And then she is taken the night before her wedding. So all of this falls between the time of her making a marriage commitment to a man and in fact, being married to a man. Mm. It is at the moment of commitment that she finds someone else. So I thought that this was put in so that we know that the devil has been watching her ever since she has spoken to the to the moon. Mm-hmm. And now you're calling him the devil. And I think well, that's absolutely open foot. Yeah, I think that's absolutely inferable. Um, I, I want to think of him as Pan, you know the Greek god. And I, I'm not sure that the connection can definitively be made either way. Um, but the hook-nosed uh, vision, um, that's something. Uh, the there, There's so many little things that I think have great meaning. For example, her name. Her name is Viola, which is a, an interesting name. It's not super common. Um and I was thinking, oh, it's a musical instrument, which kind of fits the story. Uh, but then I, I said, well, maybe that's not. So I did some more searching, and I was like, you know, there's a lot going on here. And you can't really, I think, pick one thing and say it's just this. Because I don't I don't know that uh, Payne, Barry Payne, has worked out exactly what it is, but he's put in so many suggestions. Did you notice the number of times flowers show up? Oh, Yes. I, I I think there's at least three three flowers that are called out. There's foxgloves, page 47. Um, all round it was high crumbling wall with foxgloves growing on it. Um, and foxgloves are a kind of usually purple in my view. I mean there's white ones as well, but when I think of foxgloves in my own mind, they're purple. And then um, there's convolvus. This is on page 48. Um, the brambles had flung a laced barrier across her path, and dragging mass of convolvus struck uh, 
wet and cool upon her cheek. And that's another kind of flower, and I think the name is also suggestive of other things. And then there <laughs> is... Uh, um, uh, her mouth was, a, her mouth was a kissing mouth. Um, not exactly a flower there, but um, there's one more, I think. Uh, here it is. Faster and faster she sped. This is on page 51. To the music, stepping, spinning, pirouetting, the dance was light as thistledown. Well, thistle is another kind of flower, and again, it's purple, um, as, as can be the convolvus, often are purple. And as is viola. Right, and and so there's this purple, 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 flower, 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 and I'm like, okay, well, why why viola? Well, one of the things I came across, and, and one of the other things that struck me in here, was how she, she didn't hate Hugo, she just didn't love him, whereas you know, in fact, the the way it's described, um, Hugo was comme ci, comme ça. So I guess this is in France again with the other quotes. Um, no God in her eyes, and I think that no God made me think uh, at the end that it's Pan who's taken her rather than than um, the devil. But this sort of comme ci, comme ça ness she has towards him, she would never love him even when she softens to his eventual marriage, made me think, is this a story of lesbianism? Because the moon is often associated as a female. She's making a promise to female. And then it, I've, I've somehow discovered, again, that Sappho, uh, one of the descriptors of her, a very strange descriptor, as you know, many of those old ancient Greek descriptors are, she was often called violet-haired Sappho. Honey-lipped Sappho, honey, honey-smiling and violet-haired Sappho, and you know nobody has purple hair naturally, right? So there's something going on here about her relationship with Hugo, her escape, her you know the cycle of the moon being associated with uh, menstruation, the blood, right? Uh, the attacks yeah. by the flowers, um, the foolish promise the so much going on in here it's so suggestive and i'd have no answers i just have many questions my own reading of it is that there are many different pieces and some of them i think are variable i i think your notion that that we can think of the cloven foot as pans rather than satan's is uh perfectly reasonable um i think of it more like satan because um it's it's clearly in a Christian context, uh, given the courtiers and the king. You know, it, it feels much more like we're in the land of fairy tales and we're used to mm-hmm. seeing those sort of things. And they've been Christianized as they come to us, but certainly by 1901 or whenever this thing was is first published. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but it could be Pan. The reason that I think of it as uh, the devil is that it feels so much like. Um, Young Goodman Brown and other stories by Hawthorne from half a century earlier than this, in which people go off into the woods and they, in fact, come upon the devil mm-hmm. rather than Pan. And I think also what's important here is that uh, she's granted eternal life. I mean, I think that's what we understand. She's going to live forever. Mm. Uh, what a sadness is old age. 
we're going to get her out of this old age thing. She's going to be frozen forever like um, Clara in the interview with the vampire, you know, prepubescent. Um, but but it, it could be Pan because nature is so important mm-hmm. here. I, I think, though, although the, all of these things are variable and one could talk, at least metaphorically, of the seductive power of music, um, the fact is that this this viola um, uh, that's an instrument. I mean, we see it from the very first, the very first paragraph. She is played upon. The princess Viola had, even in her childhood, an inevitable submission to the dance. Mm-hmm. A rhythmical madness in her blood answered hotly to the dance music, swaying her as the wind sways trees to movements of perfect sympathy and grace. Mm-hmm. And sympathy, I means, I think, means in this instance, feeling with, mm-hmm. literally. So, so uh, I fully endorse the of the possible readings, many of which may have some validity. I, the, to me, the most prominent is the lesbian reading. Mm-hmm. That, that she hopes, she said, not that she doesn't love Hugo, she would never be able to love right. him, but none. So she knows what she is, mm-hmm. uh, or at least what her feelings are. But she had hoped, nonetheless, that he would, in a sense, cure her, that that he would make her fit better into the world. Mm-hmm. I think what we have here is a story of someone who lives in a culture in which homosexuality is forbidden. So we're discussing it in different terms. And she's hoping that, you know, well, you know, if I if I get a man and he's good to me and I'm good to her and, and I'm good to him and, you know, maybe I'll start to feel like a normal, mm-hmm. what that means, you know, a heterosexual woman. And, and the sexual imagery here is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, landing her hair down, throwing her arms back throwing her head open, exposing her throat, the kissing mouth, mm-hmm. even the description of the landscape. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I play with a maze on a paper maze, mm-hmm. the goal of the maze is to get out the other side, right? Mm. When you go into a, a constructed maze, a hedge maze, uh, or a corn maze, the goal of it is to go in and then come back out again through the original entrance, right? Uh, sometimes it's to get out the other side. To say that the center is the goal of the maze is suddenly to offer us something, and, and you made reference to this before with some of the other descriptions, something that is very, very much ulic. It looks like a woman, and she... Can't find real pleasure dancing with other people, but she loves doing it on her own. Yeah. <laughs> right? So when finally there is a total darkness, but she is within her, this dancing room of hers, where she is used to dancing alone, where she calls out the music, where she has the, expresses the madness of her blood, who is the appropriate partner for her? In the Christian context, at least, the appropriate partner for her would be someone who gives her an eternity of indulging her perversion. And that I please make clear, mm-hmm. I'm not using the word perversion as my own judgment. This is the, what the society is suggesting at that time when homosexuality is still illegal. And certainly Christianity is deploring it 
And suddenly here comes an ancient king with his hook nose, like a wizard or, or witch, holds forth his hot hand. Mm. Yeah. And she goes with him. That hot hand is it, it, it's passion, but it's also the de- you know the devil the devil's hand. And in fact, uh, there's so much attention to detail in here that I can see why this is. <laughs> I, in in some of the searches that I made for you know looking for people's reviews and ideas and theories, um, people said this is a famous story. I, maybe that's even on the Wikipedia entry. I I it was not famous to me when I found Nora. it, um, but. I can see it being um, famous, just given how well it does everything. When she stamps her little foot, uh, <laughs> uh, later on we are see uh, a small satin shoe or a little satin shoe, right? And then the 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 what? Is it, how is it described? The un uh, yes. The other was the print of a large naked foot, a cloven foot. It, it it's it's very suggestive that's what i think is so great is it doesn't give an answer it is very much like a fairy tale um it tantalizes with what it gives you but uh it's just thinking about like how she finds this this labyrinth she can find her way to the center the very first time no problem straight away Hugo can't. The only way he can find her is to follow the trail of blood. Yes, indeed. And we know that she brings that... She she is drawn to this on a monthly basis. Right. So that trail of blood clearly suggests something quite female. Totally. And yet, I must say, um, I'm male, you're male, um... It, we're not exactly, I, well, I won't speak for you, Jesse. I don't feel in some sense that I'm exactly identifying with Viola. But, you know, when you when you read uh, uh, some of those great fairy tales that have persisted through the ages and in many versions and in many cultures, like, say, Cinderella, um, you know, a, a boy can can read a Cinderella story. And still feel that it is moving to him, in part because the idea that um, if you're obedient and you are a good person, then with good luck you can succeed. Mm. Well, son Mm. of a gun, luck, pluck, and decency is the formula for Horatio Alger stories, right? And they all have boys as protagonists. The structure of a Horatio Alger story and the structure of Cinderella are in many ways identical so a boy can read a Cinderella story or see a Cinderella movie like, say, Pretty Woman and and can enjoy it. And by, by boy, I mean here a cisgender boy. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you read this, The Moon Slave, what is the structure going on here? And I think what's going on, although we can say it's a story about lesbianism or um, a, an internal problem that someone of passion has um, in a world that doesn't accept it, suddenly when we get to that point, we're no longer really talking only about lesbianism. That just becomes Mm -hmm. an example of what it's like when you're growing up, you have your own passions, and the world wants you to do something and be something. That's the betrothal. But 
the real you is only able to be expressed in a hidden place where other people can't find you. And by golly, if if you can keep having the aids that you need, the music in this case, to continue to be your truest self, that's worth everything. It may even be worth enough to leave the world. Mm. And in that sense, this is no longer a story about lesbianism. It's a story about what it means to be a passionate person living in a controlling, form-laden world. And I think, particularly for adolescents, a story like this can resonate very powerfully, which is why, whether or not it's famous, there should, in fact, always be more to say. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.